Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. I need to thank this show's sponsor, who is in the business of building ultimate garages. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Well, welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. I have a very special guest today. I have Bill Warner from the Amelia Island Concourse d'Elegance. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. <laughs> I have to think about that. You know, it's a challenge every day. Well, I know we're actually recording this in April, but I know that you are ramping up like nobody's business to kick off the Amelia Island Concourse d'Elegance towards the end of May. So I know we want to get to your ultimate garage. But before we do that, could you just give us an overview of what's going on uh, this year for the uh, Concours? Yeah, well, obviously we had to delay it because of the COVID thing. We got through last year, and COVID cracked down three days after after our show when we honored Roger Pinsky, so we were lucky there. So we'll probably be the only show, I think, that is continuous. That we'll have a 20 and a 21 show. And um, we're honoring Lynn St. James, the first woman to be Rookie of the Year at Indy. We'll have a selection of cars from her driving career. We'll be doing Shadow, Can-Am cars. Our Goofy class this year is weird and wonderful, and we got some terrific cars in that. And uh, we're doing Chevy Thunder with... Uh, Chevrolet-powered race cars from 1955 to the current C8R Le Mans car. We're going to do our classic, is Hispano Suiza. And, uh, you know, the normal cars you'd see to Concord d'Elegance. So it's, uh, it's an all-year process. Everybody seems to think, well, you know, probably two, a month out, you, uh, you start thinking about it. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. <laughs> It costs millions of dollars to put on this show, and we have to start the day after the other show's over. Oh, some other uh, classes we're going to have is a, a, a real great feature of Porsche 935. Then we're going to do a seminar of uh, drivers of the 935, people involved with it, like Jack Atkinson from Brumos and Hurley Haywood, Bob Gerritsen, Alvin Springer from Amdahl, Bob Gerritsen, Kevin Jeanette, and Mark Raffoff, the competition manager for IMSA. And then we've got uh, Chevy Thunder Seminar on Friday with uh, Herb Fischel, who headed up uh, General Motors Competition, Dr. Eric Warren, who's current head of the NASCAR program for Chevrolet, George Fulmer, David Hobbs, who is a Can-Am champion, or Trans-Am champion for Chevrolet in the Camaro, and Brian Redmond and Dale Earnhardt Jr. Yeah, it's definitely a stellar lineup. And what I really love about your concourse is that you feature a lot of race cars as well as the regular cars you would see in a concourse. So what drives that? Well, I've been around racing all my life. And when I was asked to do a concourse, I didn't want to copy other shows. I wanted to take the best of them. Like, we do the 
the, the fashion component. That That's directly lifted from the old Meadowbrook operation, you know, and, and that goes back to what original Concours were about, fashion in the automobile or fashion in carriages. So um, we, that was one thing we wanted to incorporate, but we didn't want to be an all-classic car show. Uh, and we have two fairways, and we give two awards, best in Concours d'Elegance, best in Concours de Sport. And um, I had... One judge, a European judge, says, this is all wrong. You cannot have but one best in show. I said, look, we got two fairways, and uh, we divide it up into sports cars, race cars on one, and the classics on the other. So why shouldn't we have two awards? Who's to say a Ferrari GTO is more or less exciting than a Duesenberg SSJ? Yeah, that's really great. And I have to ask, you're known for having interesting classes that maybe a lot of other places haven't thought of. Where do you come up with those ideas? How does that conversation begin with your staff? Uh, it doesn't. It, uh, it <laughs> starts after a six-pack of Guinness. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I sit there in my brain and I say, you know, what would be really good this year? You know, we're, like we did the great hunting cars one year. Uh, and that started 10 years earlier, me trying to get and finally succeeding with the help of uh, uh, Bobby Smith out of Gainesville, Texas, the uh, King Ranch Buick, which was built by Buick in 1950, a four-door four convertible roadmaster with tools sterling silver and it had a bar in it and, and carbines in the fender a wonderful combination guns and alcohol but you know that's that was a fun car to have so <laughs> i built a show on racing on on excuse me on a great hunting cars and that's how that came about this year we're doing a, a class called weird and wonderful and i try to get some of the weirdest stuff i can and i can always go to my friend Jeff Lane in in Nashville, Nashville. has a wonderful museum. Yeah, yep. and he's bringing a car that is uh, a, a full size version of the Monopoly piece. You know that's kind of strange. <laughs> and Wayne Carini's bringing some advertising car that was built on a Corvair base, which is uh, kind of strange looking. So that class will be weird and wonderful. And we we that's what we try to do. Is you have to have a class to entertain people who don't particularly like cars. They're being drugged there for one reason or another, whether they're a husband, a wife, or some friend who says, oh, okay, I'll go this afternoon, but I don't really care about cars. So you got to have something there to entertain them. And every year we, we work on a goofy, what I call the, around the shop, we call it the goofy class. Right, and right. Some people may be offended by that, but that's the way it is. That's the way it is, right, yeah. No, that's great. And obviously it's a big draw for patrons to check this stuff out and, stuff they might not see anywhere else. And speaking of which, if someone's never been to the Concord before, what is the one must-do event they have to attend or must-do thing that they need to do? Well, I think now because of COVID, we're re- restricted in the number of tickets we can sell for the seminars. Uh, we normally would have, like for Penske last year, we had 1,000 people in the ballroom for the seminar. And uh, this year we're limited to 440 inside. So I would say the, the Chevy Thunder Seminar on Friday would be uh, one I would not want to miss. Yeah, and one thing I love to do is get out there as early as I possibly can, get the uh, early morning pass, and just kind of walk the field before, you know, before daylight. That's a lot of fun yeah. to see the cars getting set up. They're, uh, uh, we're doing a special deal on electrics this year, historic electrics and new electrics. and or Ford will be bringing down their... Uh, Mockies are driving them from New York to Amelia, then Amelia to Seattle to prove the uh, the practicality of driving an electric car on the road. Uh, Cadillac will be showing the new Lyric and General Motors the new Hum, uh, Hummer EV. And we've got uh, Porsche unveiling the new uh, rear-wheel drive uh, Taycan. 
and BMW will be showing the electric Mini, and Lucid will be showing their new cars for the first time, and Bollinger, the the new electric truck and uh, off-road vehicle. So we've got a lot of electrics lined up in uh, cars that have not been seen in public. I don't think the Lucid, the excuse me, the Lyric, Cadillac Lyric. I don't think it's been seen in any show except uh, Shanghai. So that'll be the first time for it. Yeah, that's a great place to check out the new stuff. Now, uh, I would like to move on to your Ultimate Garage. Now, this is a bit of a challenge for me because when we had our talk earlier, you basically said I could have my 10 cars done in five minutes. And then as yep. we were talking, you already expanded it to 15 cars. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so, yeah, my uh, Ultimate Garage depends on how big the garage is, I guess. Right, right. So why don't we do this? Why don't we start with 10 and uh, then we'll kind of go through each of the cars and why it earns a spot in your Ultimate Garage and then we'll see what other cars you you would like to mention, okay? Yeah, well, I broke it up into what would essentially be production cars and then race cars. So let's start with the production cars first, one of which I have in my garage, okay, which is a 1958 Cadillac Eldorado Brome. Ooh, nice. And I chose that because that was a really a hand-built Cadillac, 350 of them built, stainless steel roof, has a vanity package with the Arpege perfume, it has magnetic shot glasses, so you could fold out a little tray out of the glove box and pour yourself a drink as you drove down the highway. I can't imagine any manufacturer doing that today. <laughs> you know, encourage you to drink and drive. Right. Uh, it had air suspension, uh, Autronic Eye, you know, dims the lights, memory seat, mine of which has Alzheimer's right now, but uh, <laughs> you know, suicide doors, automatic opening trunk. This is 1957-58 they did this. I mean, and the car in 1958 cost $13,000, which was what most people made in a year if they were lucky. So I like the car because it's elegant. It's uh, it's small for a Cadillac. You know, it was downsized. Black with a stainless roof looks looks like a car's wearing a tuxedo. I have a 57 Barrett's convertible to go with it, but the, the Brome is what I call elegant. Yes, yes, and we've actually had those at some of our auctions, and it's amazing that they have maintained value during pretty much a generational shift. And when I asked someone about why is that maintaining value, that brome, and it's because it's basically a pinnacle of Cadillac design, and so it's almost yeah. iconic. And this is the RM Sotheby's official podcast, so it would be bad for me not to mention that we actually have a brome in our Amelia Island auction that ironically is also black, which is pretty kind of a small you world. You do, company. and I know the owner. And, <laughs> and, uh, How about that? I said, why are you selling? He's got all the vanity, the vanity kit alone, which is the makeup kit, the cigarette box, the uh, shot glasses, the notepad with the cross pencil and the beveled mirror, and the Arpege perfume. If you want those items, if you need a vanity kit, it's over $20,000 just for the vanity kit. Wow. Wow. Most of the cars have been converted to springs from air suspension. The air suspension was diabolical. And so for practicality, our my car has been converted to springs. But um, I've got all the stuff to put it on air. But everybody who has air says, don't do it. Right, right. Wow. Well, that's amazing that there's actually one just like yours up in our auction at your event. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, what's the next car on your list? Nine. 1938 Alfa Romeo 8C 2900 by Touring. Wow, that's a big car. Uh, yeah, there's one here in Jacksonville owned by Dan Davis at the Brumos Collection. It's the Sam Mann car. It's fabulous, you know, and there's so few of them around. Uh, Chip Connor has one. Uh, the late Bob Bear, Gary Bear, his son has one. 
Miles Collier has a coupe, but the, the Roadster by Touring, I think you would find it very hard to argue that that isn't the most beautiful pre-war uh, sports car to exist. Right. Yeah, those are beautiful and iconic and rare and you know everything that goes with what you want in a car in your ultimate garage. That's great. All right, so let's move on to your number three car. 1937, 38, or 39, Mercedes-Benz 540K Special Roadster. Wow. I think they made 24 of those, of which there's only about 36 left now. And uh, they uh, they are the iconic-looking Mercedes with the side pipes and the, uh, the supercharger. And the, they made a couple of versions, one with a spare tire hidden under a lid in the back and one with a spare tire sunken in. But uh, it it has that very sweeping, almost ready-to-lurch look. And it was fast. You know, they were... 100-mile-an-hour cars back in 1938. They were the epitome of what a wealthy German would drive. Right, and those are obviously iconic to look at, and they're, you know, the way they were built are is so impressive. Have you ever driven one of those? Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I drove an S. I drove the Ralph Lauren Count Trossi car. Wow, okay, how was that? <laughs> well, you know, you're going along thinking, I'm only driving about $40 million worth of car, and there's potato <laughs> trucks running around. We were at Montauk, Long Island, you know, farm trucks going by and everything else. When I drive a very, very expensive car, I, I really don't enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, uh, you got too much going on. I know uh, Dana Meekham let me drive his V16 Miller race car at Milwaukee one time. Mm. And, of course, with those cars, like the uh, uh, the Alpha, the gas is in the middle, the brakes on the right, the clutches on the left. So all the time, you know, you've been driving all your life with the gas on the right and the brake in the middle, the clutch on the left. Your brain is thinking, "Don't mess this up." And you, I drove uh, uh, Ray Shure's uh, two nine Alpha through Westlake Village, California, noon traffic. Oh my God! And he said, "How do you like it?" I said, "I'm glad to return it." You know, it, I I could never afford a car like that, so to enjoy it is very difficult. Wow. Well, I'll give you I'll give you the invite to a stress free driving experience. Just come up to Cincinnati. You can drive my 2014 Chrysler 300. Okay. Ah. Uh, oh, hey, that I can afford that. <laughs> and in Cincinnati too, you're down on the waterfront. That's right. That's right. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Okay. Well, what's next on your list after the Mercedes? Uh, 1958 Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase Berlinetta. All right. Now, why that car? Why not the GTO or the Testarossa? Well, you know, I had a funny thing. I had a chance to drive both a uh, short wheelbase Berlinetta and a GTO back-to-back at Roebling Road one time. And I just felt the short wheelbase Berlinetta just felt more, more, uh, how should I say, delicate. It was, it was easier to drive for me than the GTO. GTO felt like a real race car, which it is. And, uh, you know, they're both dual purpose cars, but the short wheelbase Berlinetta, I thought the proportions were so perfect on that. The way the nose dives down the, the typical Ferrari egg crate grill and you go back to the rear quarters and they, the fenders roll out kind of like haunched corners of a cat ready to spring. And, you know, the, 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 uh, greenhouse, the windshield side glass, everything flowed so beautifully. I just, it's hard to find fault with a 250 GT Berlinetta. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I actually, if you go back a couple of weeks, I just did a deep dive in blue chip Ferrari market trends. And one interesting fact that popped up was that the Ferrari Tour de France, the TDF, actually had better racing results than the GTO or the short wheelbase 
which I which, which kind of floored me. I mean, obviously, I don't think it performed as well because it was a couple years older, but it was interesting that a car of that era actually performed some of the bigger hitters just, you know, the next generation out. Yeah, and I didn't know that the TDF had had, had a better record. I know GTOs, uh, you know, Roger Penske and Augie Paps won their class at Sebring in a GTO. Fireball Roberts and Bob Grossman drove a GTO at Le Mans and, and finished well. I think they, they were running as high as fourth, I think. I'm not sure. Someone will call in and correct me. I think they finished seventh. Um, but, you know, they were always finishing high behind prototypes. Right. right. You know, so I, I have to put that into perspective because the, the, the GTO was kind of like a Testarossa with a roof. It was, it was really – it's very tasty, don't get me wrong, but I think I'd prefer – if I'm going to have a road car, I'd rather have the 250 GTB short wheelbase. Now, I used to work with Henry Manny at the Road and Track, and Henry had a GTO. He had uh, he bought it for $6,000 and lived in Paris, and he said he traded it for a 330 GT2 plus 2. I said, why would you do that, Henry? Because <laughs> the GTO was noisy, it leaked water, and it smelled bad. So... <laughs> And and today a three thirty GT two plus two is probably worth about three hundred grand, and a GTO is worth about sixty million dollars. So. <laughs> right, not a wise financial move, but at least he was happy, right? <laughs> no, I don't get that happy. I can tell you that I'd be slashing my wrists about now. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just gave us four iconic cars. I'm curious to see what your fifth production car is. So, what is it? Fifty nine Ferrari Series One Cabriolet. They made 39 oh, wow. of them, long wheelbase. They made open headlight, closed headlight, you know, uh, split bumpers, uh, hood scoop, no hood scoop, side vent, no. Everyone was different, and they were they were all owned by royalty or or very wealthy people. You know, the jazz trombonist Jack Teagarden had one. Uh, race driver Buck Fulp had one. That, that car is here in Jacksonville, as a matter of fact, covered headlight car. When I was uh, 19 years old, I worked for a Volkswagen dealer, and the boss came back from the Miami Auto Show with uh, number 1211, which now belongs to Lamont DuPont. And if you look at a Series 1 Cabriolet, all, all these Ferrari guys say, ah, I want a Cal Spider. They made 100 Cal Spiders, 50 short wheelbase, 50 long wheelbase. And they made 39 uh, Series 1 cabs. Now someone would complain, well, Series 1's cab had disc, uh, had drum brakes, but some of them were upgraded to disc in period. They were more of a boulevardier than a, than a race car. Uh, I don't know of any Series 1 cabs that were ever raced, but I knew of some Cal Spiders that were. But just the uh, the Paninfarina design, the way the windshield kind of wraps over the fender, the rake of the windshield, the long hood, the little delicate taillights that, that uh, at the top of the fender and kind of live in the crease that goes down and along the back. I mean, it's just a gorgeous car. Right, right. And you said long wheelbase, correct? Well, that's all they made. Uh, oh, that's all they made. Okay. All right. Series 1 cabs were all long wheelbase. California Spiders are a 50 short wheelbase, 50 long wheelbase. I'm assuming you want closed headlight, or do you want... It does it not matter? You know, that's, that's strange. Yes, I prefer the covered headlight one, but the open headlight car doesn't look bad either. You know, there's some cars... Uh, I've seen a Series 2 Cabriolet. They claim they made a couple with closed headlight, you know, covered headlights. Uh, I know someone that converted his to a covered headlight car, and I saw one going down the streets of Monterey one time, covered headlight, but it, in my own mind, I questioned whether that was factory. And it looks a little ungainly on the Series 2. On the Series 1, open or closed, doesn't make any difference. The car's gorgeous. Right, 
Right, yeah. Okay. Well, those are your five production cars. Now, we will have a time at the end to add number 11, 12, and 13, whatever you want to add, just out of curiosity. Okay. Yeah. But what are your five race cars? Now, this is where I'm a little fish out of water because I know a little bit about racing, but not nearly as much as you. So educate me and my listeners. I don't know if I would uh, say that, but my my first car would be a Porsche RS60 Spider. I had a chance when I, in 1968 to buy an RSK for $2,400. And I was wow. making sixty eight hundred at the year, and I, I could see me going and tell Ms. Jane I just bought a car that has no air conditioning, no radio, no top, and I spent one third of my salary on it. She would have <laughs> shot me. So that was a lost opportunity. The RS sixty has a slightly longer wheelbase and disc brakes, and I like them with the FIA glass windshield. They're really pretty cool. The nicest one I know of was uh, Joe Lacobe at San Francisco had his at, at Amelia and it, it it just it's just really nice. A car I had for twelve years and raced for twelve years, a Brabham B T eight. And uh it was one of twelve built, driven by Denny Holm, won the tourist trophy. It was uh, a very successful under two liter car. Um rather handsome. It uh had a little uh, it had a, all the provenance, you know, it wasn't very well known. Um by a lot of folks in the, uh, but it was a very successful car. Mine had raced in uh, Tripoli. Oh, it had wow. raced all over England, won the Tourist Trophy at Olton Park, raced at Laguna Seca, and Monterey. was driven by uh, Denny Holm, Frank Gardner, and Tony Lanfranchi. So it had a great, uh, great provenance. Wow, that's amazing. So would that be your number seven car? I guess so, yeah. Okay, all right. All right, we got three more. What I've had and I have a lot of experience with, and I really enjoyed it. It was attractive and fast. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Next car would be uh, Ford GT40. Yes. Okay, now you want to, is this a race one or the street version? Oh, the race one. The street version had an elongated trunk and they had round headlights. They raised the fenders to get the headlight height. It had little bumperettes, had pop-out windows. It was it was kind of a not an improvement over the race car. But they did do some street cars uh, that were in the conventional race configuration. They just raised the ride height a little bit. We had one floating around here in Florida that had air conditioning, and it was a street car. I was talking with a friend of mine, who uh, Steve Pasteiner, who had used to head up design at the Buick Studios and owns uh, Advanced Automotive in, in Rochester Hills. And we were talking about the car. He says, you know... Most cars, to look right, have to have a belt line, you know, where the right. fender joins the door and then goes to the rear fender. Uh, the Ford GT40 did not, but it's a very attractive, very uh, well-proportioned uh, car from an appearance standpoint. Of course, from a performance standpoint, originally came with a 289 Ford, and then later he had Westlake heads and Weber's, and uh, some cars were delivered with single four barrels, you know, the, the, the street car was. But um, not nah, a GT40. Just the the, uh, the whole the history of the car and the look of the car is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they are gorgeous. All right, well, you have two more to go. What's next on your uh, top ten ultimate garage list? Porsche 917. Oh yeah. Okay. If you want to get more particular, uh, the uh, you could get with one of the Golf 917s or the <laughs> Le Mans winning. Uh, I think it was Porsche Austria car. Of Halewood. Uh, have you driven was, the? Uh, have you have you driven the one there that's in Jacksonville? No, I, I don't think I, I'm six foot three. I don't think I can fit in it. <laughs> All right, be worth trying, but you might hurt yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they'd have to extract me. I 
I once got in. I was with uh, my friend Pat Ryan, and he he had Bobby uh, Rahal's Indy car. And he said, "Get in it!" And I got I got jammed in it, and I couldn't get in. I couldn't get out, and all the guys are sitting around <laughs> laughing. I said, but "Someone, please help me! I'm not going to spend the night here." <laughs> when you're my size, you're kind of limited to what you can drive. Right, yeah, which is a really good point because some of these cars, I was kind of wondering if I could fit in them, and I'm only six feet tall, so uh, it's good to know that I need to go by your list because it seems like I could fit in the cars that you could fit in. <laughs> yeah, I've got an old Pontiac A sedan that I run in, in vintage racing now, and and uh, my problem is I don't have a problem fitting in it. I have a problem getting in it because i got to crawl through the window NASCAR style. Oh, my goodness. And, and at 78 years old, that is a challenge. You know, the bones don't bend like they used to. <laughs> Well, now we have one more technically in your top 10 list. So what would be the 10th car before we move on to a couple extra you'd like to add? Probably everybody's 10th car or first car or top car. Ferrari's P3-4. Mm. Either P3, P4. No not make They look alike. They're uh, stunningly beautiful. Last of the aluminum coachwork cars. Every line flows gorgeously. I mean, it just, it's, it's poetry just watching one go by and of course the noise of v12 ferrari of that ilk uh generates is enough to just curl your blood i mean anybody who would argue with me about the p34 should go back to driving a trabant wow well that's your top 10 right now now we do have uh you know a couple special mention cars here if you'd like to add a few more that were on the edge of your list but you couldn't quite get them into your top 10 for road cars the mclaren f1 mm, yep you know I've never driven one. We'll have one at the show this year, and we're going to be doing a presentation with McLaren over their new car, the Artura, which is a twin-turbo V6, and we're going to match it up with the uh, F1. But uh, the F1 is, it, you know, it's amazing how valuable those cars have gotten. I think they built 64 of them, and for a modern-day, I say modern-day car, you know, it's 20 years old now, 25 years old, it's still considered the... Uh, benchmark for road cars right yes and i i had wayne carini on recently and i he had his ultimate garage and he picked the f40 and i asked him well, why not the mclaren f1 he said just because they're temperamental you know they're hard to keep running properly and uh so he picked the f40 in place of the of the f1 which i thought was an interesting comment uh i would think it's an interesting comment too because i'm not sure so sure an f40 is a waltz in the park but uh, you know <laughs> wayne yeah. Wayne works on them. I had a BMW M1 for about 12 years, and it was, uh, if you didn't drive it a lot, it was a nightmare. I mean, uh, the uh, distributor cap points would corrode, and you'd have to shoot it with Worth Oil and put it back on. And then it would, uh, it, it just, it drove all right, but it was high maintenance. Right, right. Yeah, and you actually, you had a very nice article about that M1 in Sports Car Market, correct? Yeah, one guy attacked me on it. <laughs> He said, oh, no. I don't know what was wrong with your car. You must have bought a bad one. I had a lovely one. And then uh, Kent Bain, my friend in, in Connecticut, said, amen. He said, you don't know what kind of problems these cars have. A lot of guys drive their cars. They don't work on their cars. They don't see what's happening. For example, on mine, it has two little metal A-frames that, are, that come out from the, the chassis, and they mount the fuel tank on them, fuel tanks. There's one on each side. And they were two stampings welded together and then they just dropped them on this a-frame well things would move around it would chafe it one day i was at a post office and i got out of the car and i kept smelling raw fuel and i looked it was just dripping out of where it had chafed through the the weld on the gas tank so we took it apart and then put rubber strips on the a-frame and then set a new tank on it so that 
it wouldn't chafe. But, you know, those cars were almost, and I say it in the article, the M1 was a sophisticated kit car. It had a lot of stuff pop riveted on it. It had a lot of parts bin stuff like the gauges and taillights, which I understand. I mean, it's you don't, if you're only going to make 400 cars, you don't tool up molds to make taillights and door handles and everything else. And I enjoyed it. It was practical from the standpoint you could put luggage in the back and, and go somewhere in it. But uh, now I've got a, a C8 Corvette, and I love that car. Right. I just, it, the eight-speed gearbox is magic. I got trunk room in the front and trunk room in the back. I can go on a trip with it. It's got, uh, it's got all the, the, the goodies you'd want uh, as far as uh, GPS and, and uh, you know, wireless charging your phone. And you can program that car to do whatever you want and however you want it to sound, however you want it to handle. Chevrolet did a magnificent job. And when you think about it, that car is an 80 grand car. That's a lot of car for 80 grand. Yeah, and I remember one stat is that the base car almost outperforms the last generation ZR1, which is just insane. You know, moving yeah. the engine to the back really gave it a lot more traction and usability uh, versus previous generations. So that's amazing. One thing RM Sotheby's does like to do with our auction to tie it into Amelia Island is to make sure that yeah. we have some race inspired cars that come up for sale as well as yeah. some actual race cars. And I just wanted to point out, we do have a 1980 BMW M1 for sale as well. So if one of the listeners wants to experience, hopefully a better experience than you had with your M1, uh, <laughs> there is one available. Well, they're great driving cars. And, uh, you know, I I bought mine for like sixty grand, And by the time I got finished with it, I really lost money on it. But I liked it. It's just that I like this new Corvette a whole lot better than anything else. <laughs> uh, I've got a Ford GT I bought in 2005, one of the early ones, and I like it a lot too. Uh, but I couldn't go anywhere in it. There, there wasn't any. Uh, there was no trunk, uh, luggage room, you know, and they weren't practical for going on trips. And uh, the Corvette answers that problem. It's it's very very good. I got a Porsche 911 I've owned since new. I paid $7,900 for a brand-new 911 in 1971. I'm driving it today, and uh, I bumped the engine up to a 2.7 with about 220 horsepower. And It's such a good car. You have a 50-year-old car drives like a modern-day car for me. Yeah. No power steering, no power brakes, but easy to drive. And then uh, I got a Ferrari Daytona, which was like driving a truck till I put the... Uh, electric power steering and easy power steering just made it more manageable but uh i was just thinking the other day here's this ferrari daytona made in 71 and the porsche made in 71 porsche was 7900 dollars. i don't know what a daytona cost new probably around 20 25 grand something like that and uh if you wanted well i ran the porsche on the cannonball so if you want to take a long trip that's a good car to do it with yeah one thing you mentioned before the call was how did you put it? If you wanted to drive cross country, it's the it's the Dino. If you wanted to, you know, do a, a quick I don't know. How did you put it earlier? Well, if you if you if you for general driving and around town, the nine eleven is, is terrific, and uh, you know, and it wasn't bad on long distances. If you want to go long distances at a high speed all day long, then the Ferrari Daytona would be the one to do oh, it. Right, the Daytona. Yep. The seats okay. aren't very comfortable in Daytona. It's kind of like sitting on a small toilet, but. The uh, 911 was built for more plushy German people, I think. Right, right. Yes, for sure. Well, are there any other cars you'd like to mention that are just outside of your top 10 cars in your Ultimate Garage? 
Uh, well, I did buy a hot rod recently, a 32 oh. Ford High Boy that was built in Fresno in 51. Got it from Buddy Pep in, in Beverly Hills. And it's it's a traditional hot rod, flathead mercury. Um, you know, tall tires, white walls, dog dish, uh, trim rings, really tasteful car. Uh, that's not necessarily a car made by a certain manufacturer, but it's a car I like in the garage. Um, let me see. We've been weighted towards Porsche and Ferrari in my list, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I jokingly say to people there's some cars better hanging as a picture on your wall than dripping oil in your garage. Yeah, here um, a Countach is one of those cars because that's the car that was on my wall growing up. You know, that looks like a doorstop, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, I like the Mura, but they tell me I have never driven a Mura, but those that have say they get pretty unstable above about 130. And uh, they were... They really forced Ferrari's hand to go mid-engine. Right. Uh, that when the Daytona came out, everybody thought, "Well, Ferrari's stuck in the front engine deal because uh, the Mira came out when '67, '66, and it it just blew everybody's mind. Transverse V12, uh, really handsome car, uh, but people I know have owned them say, "Yeah, wouldn't want to put a whole lot of time in one." Right, the car that I had in my garage, which is now in a museum in uh, in Detroit, in the Eleanor and Ford house, is the Edsel Ford Speedster, which was an all aluminum car that uh, that RM restored uh, for Edsel Ford, and uh, it's gorgeous. Uh, if a nineteen thirty four boat tail Speedster, you know there are specific cars. Uh, Arturo and Deborah Keller brought their uh, uh, Caracciola S class Mercedes unrestored. Uh, two years ago, and that that was a fabulous car. Here's what you've got to do: you you've got to write me a check for about a hundred million dollars and let me go out and buy some things. I don't know if we could afford your list with that. Looking at some of these cars in your list, I'm like, that's thirty million dollars. That's twelve million dollars. That's thirty million. <laughs> so no maybe one 120. ever accused me of having bad taste. <laughs> that's true. That's true. There are people who have money who have bad taste, but I am the other side of the group. (laughs) That's great. That's awesome. Well, one thing I like to do at the end of these is to play a little game I call Keep Cash and Crush, and I did give you a heads up on this, uh, but still there's no way to prepare. So here we go. I'm going to give you three cars, one you have to keep forever, one you have to cash in, and then one you have to unfortunately send to the crusher. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right, so I tried to go with the race car theme. None of these cars are on your list. I'm not that cruel. But I did pick three race cars that are also street legal, or they were, you know, they have the streetable version of the race car. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right, I got three different decades. The first one's a 1993 Dower Porsche 962, street legal Porsche 962. The next one is a 1967 Lola T70. And the third car is probably the most comfortable car, and I don't know that it had a lot of race success, but a 2004 Maserati MC12. So of those three, which one would you keep forever, which one would you cash in, and which one would you send to the Crusher? So I've got to put that on one of the three. One of those cars has to go to the Crusher. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. All right. Uh, Cash in the Dower 962. Okay. Why? Well, first, I probably couldn't fit in it. Uh, <laughs> second, uh, it's kind of big. When you, I, I saw what, what I saw one of them when they had here. Uh, Brumos had one in, and we had one at the show a couple of years ago. Okay. It looks swoopy, uh, but it just doesn't do much for me. 
So I would I would cash in that one. Okay, and for the record, I picked these before I knew how tall you were. Okay. <laughs> the Lola T70. I came close to buying one one time. And we got a guy here in Jacksonville who builds them, brand mm. new. Uh, wow. I mean, Mac, Mac, Mac McClendon. And he was doing the continuation cars for Martin Burain before Martin Burain died. I'd take a Lola, a Lola, I tried to buy a Lola T70 Mark III B, uh, but I'd want it in a coupe configuration. And that okay. would be a keeper. Okay. Uh, Chevy V8, pretty easy to maintain, kind of swoopy looking, kind of in the Ford GT ilk. It was from that same era. Yep. And uh, I hate it, hate to say it, but I'd probably crush the Maserati. <laughs> I, you know, I, I like it. You know, it's a, essentially it's an F50. From an, if you ask me which one would I keep and sell and crush, from a financial standpoint, I'd, I'd crush the Lola and keep the Maserati because the Maserati is essentially a Ferrari F50, right? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's perfect. I mean, uh, you, so you're keeping the Lola. That's great that you're keeping actually the one that might not be worth the most, but it, it's worth the most to you. So, uh, no, those are great answers. I appreciate the perspective on each of those. So what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about Amelia Island Concourse Elegance? Well, the easiest thing, go on our website, www.ameliaconcourse.org, and we have videos on there, and we have what you can reserve. The Porsche driving experience is going to be fabulous this year. We're going to be doing it on the 8,000-foot runway at Jacksonville International Airport with Hurley Haywood. I think they're going to bring a GT3, and they're going to bring the new uh, Taycan, and they're going to be given high-speed rides. We were out there last week testing, and Hurley took uh, three members of the airport authority for a 143-mile-an-hour ride down the wow. runway in an all-electric car, and that was pretty cool. But unfortunately, that's sold out. They're going to tour to the Brumos Collection. I would encourage everybody, go to the Brumos Collection while you're down here. Yeah, that's an incredible collection. And the, the displays alone are worth the price of admission. No, that's great. All right, well, thank you so much, Bill, for sharing your ultimate garage with us, and we'll look forward to seeing you down in Amelia. Thank you so much. I appreciate you calling. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. <laughs>